Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. So for those of you who are just joining us, uh, we've been going through the book of Philippians. And we chose the book of Philippians because the church at Philippi was a healthy congregation. And even though it was a healthy congregation, it still had some challenges. And and we believe that we are building a healthy congregation here in Burlington. And so we want to be aware of the types of challenges that afflict a healthy congregation. And so we started in, we started with Philippians 1 verse 1, and that's as far as we got, um, because we went to Acts 16. And we looked at, you can't hear me back there, louder. Okay, this will be a short Bible study. The louder I have to speak, the shorter the study will be. Um, Acts 16 showed the founding of the church in Philippi. So we spent some time going through Acts 16 and seeing how the uh, Philippian church was the first church in Europe as as, uh, Paul went into Europe with the gospel and met a a convert there or or a lady there called uh, Lydia who was a, a dealer in purple cloth. And God opened her mind to uh, understand the gospel, and that was the founding of the church. The sequence of events for this letter to Philippi, the scholars agree, goes like this. The Philippians learned that Paul was imprisoned, and we believe that he was imprisoned in Rome. Can you hear me okay? And they sent Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome with a gift to deliver to Paul. Epaphroditus fell seriously ill on his way to deliver the gift, and he nearly died. He recovered, completed his journey to Paul, and delivered the gift. While he was delivering the gift to Paul, he learned that the Philippians were very anxious about him, and he became distressed that they were distressed. Paul sent Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this letter, in which he commends Epaphroditus and thanks the Philippians for their gift, warns them about false teachers, and informs them of his own circumstances and plans. So that's the sequence of events. Looks like you're still struggling to hear me. Sure. Thank you. I guess there's a bit of a background hum here. So is that better? Okay. So let's go to Philippians. In Philippians 1, verse 1, which we covered, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, or slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And it's amazing how many times the Apostle Paul mentions Jesus Christ in this book. The book is 102 verses, and Christ is referred to 54 times in 102 verses. So it's a very Christ-centered Letter, and that's what he wants the Philippians to get. So it's to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So again, Paul is writing to the whole congregation. He's not writing to the overseers and the deacons as a separate class, as a higher class. They're just part of the brethren. But he is calling them out because they do have a responsibility of oversight and service. But the letter is to the whole congregation. Now, verse 2, grace to you and peace 
Uh, grace to you was a common Greek uh, greeting, and shalom, or peace, was a common Hebrew greeting. And so he combines both the Greek and the Hebrew. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we'll just pause here and, and notice that it's not from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not a third person in the Godhead. In fact, the concept or the notion of Trinity did not come into Christianity until the 4th century B.C. And I shouldn't say that, actually. 3rd century B.C. it started to uh, emerge. There was a lot of controversy around the Godhead. And the emperor, Constantine, called a council at Nicaea to actually solve this problem. Constantine himself was not a Christian. At this time, he was not baptized, but he was the emperor. And it was his idea to use Christianity to unite the kingdom. So the, the Christians were persecuted. It was an unwelcome religion. But once Constantine got a hold of it, he saw that he could actually use it to his uh, purposes to unite the whole kingdom. And so he called this council at Nicaea. And in the Encyclopedia Wikipedia, it says, the first council of Nicaea was a council of Christian bishops convened in Nicaea, in Bithynia, present-day Turkey, by the Roman Emperor Constantine I in A.D. 325. So he wanted to solve this controversy. He's not a theologian, he's not a bishop, and yet he had the final say. And he said, this is what we will believe as Christians, to get everybody united. And it became heresy to teach anything else. The Trinity actually comes from Plato, and if you look up something called the Demiurge, you'll see the Trinitarian doctrine in Plato's writings. And the Greek philosophers, when they came into Christianity, in a, in a sense, Christianity was embarrassing to them. When you look at the writings of somebody like Mark, a fisherman who's writing in Greek, that was some pretty rough Greek. And if you're a philosopher, if you're well-educated, it's embarrassing to have writing like this. And so they were trying to upgrade Christianity. And so they, there's something called syncretism, where they started to in, 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 uh, inject Greek philosophy into Christianity to make it more respectable. And Trinity is a Plato or Greek philosophy concept or notion that they brought into Christianity, which the Emperor Constantine endorsed and made it basically uh, heresy to teach anything else, but it's not from the Bible. Verse 3, and I, I should mention to those of you who are new, this is interactive. I'll, I'll cover up to verse 12. I believe I'll stop at verse 12, and then we'll open it up for discussion. So if you have any thoughts, ideas, comments, uh, we'll entertain those then. And so we'll do a section at a time and then have some interaction. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, which is just a wonderful thing for this apostle to have to write. Uh, if you look at the apostle Paul's writings, he suffers a lot because of the brethren. He's in pain a lot because of the brethren. He sheds so many tears because of the brethren. But here in Philippi, he's able to write them, grateful, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer 
notice this, with joy. And joy is mentioned a lot in this book. The Philippians make Paul happy, which is quite uh, an exception. And let's just hop over to Hebrews 13 for a moment. Hebrews 13, and notice in verse 17, we don't know who the author of the book of Hebrews is. Some believe it's Paul. Uh, others believe it's Apollos. So there's lots of opinions. It's, it's unknown, really. Uh, the, the author here says, in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's their job. They're overseers, and they're overseers of our souls as those who will have to give an account. So here in this congregation, our pastor is Pastor Murray, and God has charged him with oversight of this congregation, and he has to give an account to God for the souls in this congregation. And every congregation that has overseers, that's the responsibility that God charges them with. As those who will have to give an account Notice this. Let them do this with joy. Please. This is a difficult responsibility. It's hard. Let them do it with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So we can make this a difficult congregation for Murray to manage. It would make his life interesting. (laughs) But it's something that he would be groaning over. And so many ministers, so many elders groan. They're in agony over their congregation because of the infighting and all the problems that that happen. And and here the the, the writer of Hebrews is asking the Hebrew congregation, or the, the Hebrews, be sensitive. This is a difficult job. Let them do it with joy. And the Philippians were certainly doing this. Let's go back to Philippians 1. Where Paul, in every prayer, every time he prays for the Philippians... He's praying with joy. He's so happy at what has transpired since the founding of the church. Philippians 1, verse 5. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So from that very first convert, Lydia, when he first came into Macedonia, right up until today, they have been partners with him in the gospel. And he just rejoices over that. There are so many uh, brethren that fall away, so many false brethren, so many adversaries. And here the Philippians were loyal and faithful right from the beginning. Verse 6. And I am sure of this, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, so right from the beginning where we, we were before in Acts 16, when Christ began that good work and the Spirit opened up Lydia's heart to the gospel, that he who began this good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he is so confident because he is constantly praying for the congregation. And and he knows that God is working through the Spirit, through this congregation. Verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are, all, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So this is, I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version. Notice how the New Revised Standard Version translates this verse. It says, It is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. So most translations will translate this, that I hold you in my heart, but the NRSV says you hold me in your heart. And many of the scholars believe this is the proper, more accurate reading of the Greek. That they, the Philippians, love Paul so much, and it's right for him to, to be joyful over them because of the love that they have for him, that it's a mutual uh, love that they have for one another. For all of you sharing God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment, so even though he was imprisoned, they did not forsake him, they sent gifts to him, they continued to pray for him, they continued to uphold him as an apostle. Unlike the Corinthian congregation, which dismissed his apostolic authority, he had to fight for his authority with the Corinthians. Here with the Philippians, they completely support Paul and acknowledge his authority. This word, uh, defense, is the Greek word apologia. Apologia. And this is where we get the word uh, an apologist. So a Christian apologist. And I think in English that sounds like somebody apologizing for being a Christian. And, and the word is actually defense. It means a verbal defense. And if you quickly look at Acts 22... Acts 22 and verse 1, where Paul says, Brothers and fathers, he's speaking to his Jewish community, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense, or hear the apology that I now make before you. So it's an apology. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city. And he goes on to give his credentials. So he's making an apology, which means a defense. And, and that's something we're going to be talking about tonight, for those of you who come, uh, when we are launching our men's fellowship club, that we need apologists. We need men who can stand up and apologize this way. Apologize for this doctrine. And that means to defend it accurately and vigorously. Defenders of the faith. And it's not that we want a congregation where one or two or maybe three people can preach the word of God. We want a congregation where every man is able to stand up and give a defense of the doctrine. And so we're going to start this club to train our men that all of us are operating at the same level. And any one of us can give a defense of the gospel. Philippians 1. For God is my witness, verse 8. For God is my witness. God knows how I yearn for you all. So Paul is being held against his will. He's in prison. He longs to go back to Philippi and be with the brethren. He's saying, God is my witness, how I yearn for you. And notice this. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It brings to mind when Christ was on earth before the last Passover. And he said, with desire have I desired to take this Passover with you before I suffer. It was a 
burning desire that Christ had to be with his disciples before he took the Passover. And that same burning desire is the desire that Paul has to be with the Philippians. And it's interesting, we, we mentioned, so I gave a sermon as well on Acts two, uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 12. And embedded in that is the, the Christ hymn, a hymn that they used to sing <laughs> worshiping Christ in the early church. And it speaks about putting on the mind of Christ. And that really is the heart of this book. So everything in the book of Philippians centers around the mind of Christ. Here in chapter 1, we're leading into the Christ hymn. And in the rest of chapter 2, verses chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're coming out of the Christ hymn. And everything centers around the content in the Christ hymn, which is the mind of Christ. And so as we're going through the book of Philippians, you could almost draw a line down a page. And every verse decides, does it go on the left or the right? The left is selfish ambition. The right is the mind of Christ. And so Paul himself, as he writes, he is an example or an exemplar of the mind of Christ. Everything he does, you're seeing this humility, this preferring others above himself. And so here he's saying he has the desire of Christ for the brethren in Philippi. Verse 19. Oh, sorry, verse 9. And it is my prayer, that so, so this is what he's praying for now, and this kind of gives us an indication of how we should pray for one another. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So it was a loving congregation. And, and Paul is praying that their love will increase more and more. But notice this, not just that the love, the agape love, would increase more and more, but that it would increase more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The word knowledge there is the Greek word epignosis, and it means the coming at the knowledge of a thing, the ascertainment, the perception or impression, insight, knowledge, understanding. And the word discernment is the Greek word aesthesis, which means perception or understanding. So his prayer is that this healthy congregation would grow even healthier by, by their love increasing, that agape love the, that comes from the mind of Christ, increasing more and more, but that that increase in love would be accompanied by the increase in knowledge and all discernment. And that discernment, again, fundamentally, this walk that we're on, is about taking on the mind of Christ. And so we should be able to discern, especially in ourselves, when are we functioning according to the mind of Christ, and when are we functioning out of selfish ambition. So that love grows, and that discernment is growing as well. We're getting better and better. It's, it's like when you uh, tune a radio... There's the coarse tuning, and then there's fine tuning, where you really want to tune in on that station. And this is where we need to get to in our love, where we can really tune. What is agape love? And how do we express it to one another? And, and getting more and more discerning, more, more attuned, more detailed in our understanding how to take on the mind of Christ. Verse 10. 
so that you may approve what is excellent. So if we have this increase, so we have the increase in love, but we also have the increase in knowledge and understanding, so that we may approve what is excellent. And the mind of Christ is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So again, that, that discernment between selfish ambition, just doing something for ourselves, and, and having the mind of Christ where it's all about others. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So let's stop there, uh, verse 11, and your thoughts. Any comments or thoughts on, on or questions on verses 1 to 11? Larry, I see you smiling. Holding it down. <laughs> Don't say anything. Do you have a thought? No, actually, I will. Okay. Uh, maybe while you're thinking, I'll just ask you, um, from verses 1 to 11, what we've covered so far, the reason we're studying this is we're laying the foundation for this congregation. So we don't know what the future holds, but the present is about laying the foundation. What have you seen here that kind of says to you, hey, this is something we do need to concentrate on, or do you have any comments or advice? Brother Wright. Uh, yes. Uh, right at the first there is this Paul and Timotheus, <clears throat> uh, the servants of Jesus Christ. Uh, that word servant, shouldn't that be uh, translated slaves? Yes, See, exactly. It's doulos, yes. Say that already? Yes, so that's a very good observation. Do you want to make an observation of that? Or? Uh, well, there's a difference between a servant and a slave. Yeah. Go on. I guess it's, <laughs> she can explain it better than me. But uh, I, I guess the servant is, uh, is someone who can uh, say, well, I'm going to quit my job. But a slave is more captured. Correct. More dedicated and doesn't want to leave. That's right. A slave is completely uh, owned by the master. They are owned outright. And then the, the Greek word is doulos. Uh, so they are slaves of Christ. And yes, it has the connotation of being completely owned and not having any choice, but it also has the connotation of being used by God. So it has a, in, in the Hebrew context, it's a position of honor. To be a slave of God is to say that God has chosen you and he is working through you. And so for Paul as the apostle to say, we are slaves of Christ, in a sense, he's establishing his position as well as a true apostle of God. So a slave that is well treated by his master. Yes. Yeah, a master with the mind that he explains here. Right. Which is great. Good point. Yes, Larry. We You mentioned the Corinthians, and we know that the Corinthians had a lot of problems with, you know, Hebrews coming in and trying to, trying to pervert what the, what the apostle had taught them. Is this true of Philippi, or is or not yet? Uh, well, he it's not. I would say not yet, um, because when we looked at chapter three, those first few verses in chapter three, Paul is warning them. There's, there's no correction in the book of Philippians. There's no doctrinal correction. Paul is always writing to correct people on doctrine, and yet in, to the Philippians, there's no correction. But there is a warning, and he says, "Beware of the dogs." Beware of the mutilators of the flesh, the circumcisers, uh, because they're bringing this uh, perverted Jewish 
uh, angle to the gospel, which is destroying the gospel. There was Gnosticism. There was Gnosticism more from the Greeks, um, but from the Jews there was this uh, uh, focus on the law in a way that was not, it was confining. It was not uh, highlighting the truth of the gospel. And at the time, and this is, I think this is a very important point, you'll have a lot of, uh, quote-unquote, New Testament Christians focusing on Paul's railing against the circumcisers. And they'll use that today. Today, our problem is not the Jews or their influence on Christianity. It's not such a big problem. Why? Because of Constantine. Constantine destroyed the Judaizers. Their, their, their influence was neutralized because of the Roman Emperor. Today, our problem is Greek philosophy. The same Greek philosophy that is impinging on Christianity. And even brethren are getting caught up in, in, in the so-called Christianity, if I can say that, which is really Greek philosophy. And so it's not the Judaizers we have to be as concerned about as it is the Greek philosophers, the, the, the Platonists. It's also the, the, the Syncreti- syncretism. Syncretism. Yes. Yes. yes, exactly. That's, that's affected mainstream Christianity or Protestantism, and they're not aware of it because it's too far back in history. Very good point. So um, the term that Larry's using is syncretism. It's when you mix religions to make a new religion that suits you. So that's syncretism. I'd just like to comment on Ray's comment there, the bondservant or the slave uh, completely owned. Yes. Uh, if you go into Torah, there's a law on that. that if a bondservant's injured, uh, he gets no uh, compensation. The master does. So uh, you're completely owned. Uh, the master's in control. Uh, that's why you're know, reading the Bible, vengeance is mine. Because the bond servant, uh, he's completely owned by the master, and if he has an injury, mm-hmm. it's the, the bond or the master that gets the compensation or, or repays the, what was done. It's a very good point. So that, that would speak to the expectations of the slave as well, right? So Paul, as a slave, doesn't have any expectations. By the same token, uh, if the bond servant does something that's not right. Uh, guess where the blame goes. Mm. You can see that in uh, today in industry, or if you're an employee of somebody and you, and you do something, it's the employer yes. that's liable. Thanks so much. That's liable. Yes. For what done. Very good. Very good. Okay, should we continue? Yes? Alright. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So they are worried, they're upset that Paul has been imprisoned. Uh, They're writing to him, they're sending gifts to him, and he's writing back saying, you know what? It's all good. It actually, the way things have turned out, the gospel has been advanced in a way that we couldn't predict. Verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, 
having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's noticing two things have happened. One is, everybody knows I'm imprisoned for Christ, and so they want to understand the gospel to know what is it that I'm standing up for that I would be imprisoned, a Roman citizen imprisoned. So the gospel has spread throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. And then secondly, the brothers there in Rome that have seen Paul's courage and faith, they're now much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, so Paul is saying, this is wonderful what has happened. Don't, don't worry about it. It's all in God's design. Now, verse 15. Again, we're, we're, we have that line down the page where the things go on the, the side of selfish ambition or the side of the mind of Christ. So they're all out there speaking the word without fear. Now, a bit of a proviso. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So yes, everybody's more courageous. They're out there. They're preaching the word of God. But some of them are preaching it from envy and rivalry, selfish ambition. But others from goodwill. Here he is, verse 17. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So they're actually competing with Paul. And, and to this day, this is something that afflicts the church. That God gives gifts. And if somebody is excelling in their gift, rather than rejoice, what do we do? We get envious. We get jealous. We, we begin infighting. And, and this is, you know, they, they think that they're going to harm Paul competing with him. But Paul is so Christ-centered that nothing is going to take him off his game. He knows that everything he does is for Christ, and in the end it all works together for good. And he knows that today. So whatever happens, he's saying, it's fine. Uh, the latter, sorry, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, which we are to avoid. So this is amazing. They are, they are preaching the truth. If, if they were not preaching the truth, Paul would call them up on it right here. Beware of their false doctrine. Here's where they're wrong. There's no correction. They're preaching the truth. It's just the motive that they're preaching with is wrong. It's, it's self, they want glory, self, self-aggrandizement. thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul is imprisoned. He can't really... It's like a a game in a sense that they're scoring all these points and Paul is in the penalty box. And so he can't score. And so they think that that's going to afflict him. It doesn't afflict him. The latter... So some do it out of selfish ambition. The latter do it out of love. Knowing that I am put here for the apology, the defense of the gospel. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. So the true gospel is getting out, and it's going into areas where Paul himself maybe couldn't have gotten to. So Paul is rejoicing in the fact that people are hearing the true gospel. And and I guess he's also praying that God would guide those new converts to teachers, to shepherds who will look after them. So a false shepherd may bring the gospel, but let's hope that the brethren come to a true shepherd. 
And that's why, you know, speaking with Pastor Murray and, and Deacon Jan, we are so committed to building a healthy congregation here. That brethren have a place where they can come, they can be valued, they can be loved, they can grow, they can be mature, not manipulated, not oppressed, not, not torn apart. Uh, it's so lacking. The church of God has the truth of God, but most churches are dysfunctional, unfortunately. Most leaders are dysfunctional. And, and uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. Rewind. <laughs> I'll take it back. And I'll say most human beings are dysfunctional. And most leaders are human beings. <laughs> and draw your own conclusions. Is that okay? Is that better? Um, so we need, and, and that's again why we're so passionate about having our men's fellowship, is we need men who are healthy in their minds, who have the mind of Christ, who can defend the gospel, but are not going to use the, their knowledge to puff themselves up over brethren. The church at Philippians, he wrote to all the Philippians with the overseers and the deacons. He didn't write just to the overseers and the deacons to say you're a higher class of people than everybody else. So we need to make a healthy congregation that brethren can come here, hear the word of God, and grow, and be fulfilled. And, 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 and mature, not, not oppressed by uh, other brethren. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And again, just emphasis on the prayer. So the prayer life here, that Paul is praying for the congregation, the congregation is praying for him. And, you know, they're not praying for a new car. They're not praying for more money. They're not praying for their personal health, with the sole focus of that. Sometimes when, you, when you, we hear uh, prayers by brethren, it's so self-centered. We're here, we've got to have this higher level prayer life for the work of God and have this higher level perspective. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This word, eager expectation, uh, Tyndall commentary uh, expounds on this. It's the Greek word, apokaradokia. Apokarodokia, which is also found in Romans 8.19. It's a picturesque word, possibly Paul's own coinage, which the RSV translates eager expectation, and the NIV renders as a verb, I eagerly expect. It denotes a state, listen to this, it denotes a state of keen anticipation of the future, the craning of the neck to catch a glimpse of what is to come. The concentrated intense hope which ignores all other interests and strains forward as with outstretched head, so confidently does the apostle await the verdict of his trial, preoccupied not with his fate, but rather with the desire 
that whatever happens may result in the glory of his master. So again, speaking to that uh, concept of the doulos, the slave. He's not concerned about himself. He's so eagerly straining forward that he knows no matter what, this is going to be for the furtherance of the gospel. He's just not sure how. Whether he needs to, so he's waiting for his judgment to come down. He may be sentenced to death. He's eagerly anticipating that sentence. Or he may be set free. And he's eagerly anticipating that as well. Because he knows either way, the word of God and the will of God is going to go forward. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I will choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is, he knows that when he dies, his consciousness ceases. And when he's resurrected, he'll be with Christ in the next moment. Where was I? Which verse was I? Thanks. My desire is to uh, depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he's kind of torn between the two. If he's sentenced to death, that's great. Because his journey is now over. He's with Christ. His martyrdom will even help spread the gospel even more. At the same time, he sees the necessity of the work that needs to be done with the brethren. So it's more necessary on their account that he remains. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. So he really sees the need in the church for leadership. And he's convinced that because of that, he will be released. That I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So let me pause there and again open it up for some discussion. Uh, thoughts or comments? Verse 10. Verse 10? Okay. Sorry, you moved on. Okay, sure. I think something that's very important there is, is uh, being able to discern what is best. As brethren, there's a huge responsibility on us to make good judgments, yes. good decisions, because we're going to be judging angels someday. Yes. So this is the um, training ground yes, very good. to learn judgment, to learn and judgment's based on discernment, right? Yes. If you don't have good yes. discernment, you, can't have good, you can't have good judgment. So, to me, there's a huge responsibility for the brethren to be really asking God for to, to develop our discernment because we're exposed to so many things in this world, and Satan's the author of lies, mm-hmm. and actually miss mixed information, right? Mm-hmm. So, mixing a little bit of truth with error yes. is... That's, that's his from. technique. Right, that's, we know where that comes yes. from. Well, then, um, and maybe this is going, I, I tend to apply things to personal life. Yes, me, which I is the point. If, really. I, if I'm going a little far afield, okay. please forgive me, but um, I see a lot of mixture of truth and error in emails that get forwarded. Mm. And I think as brethren, we have to be very careful of forwarding anything that's a mixture mm-hmm. of truth and error because we're supposed to be discerning mm-hmm. And if we don't know for sure that's 100% truth, and it's something that might um, 
slander or libel to either an organization or a person, we need to make sure we don't do that. Yes. And, and unfortunately, maybe it's because we have more contact with brethren than we do with the world, mm -hmm. we get more of those forwards from brethren than we do from the world. Mm -hmm. So, uh, to me, this is a huge part of discernment. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about discernment, and maybe it comes from that part before it talks about love and then that leading to, to, to um, knowledge and insight and then discernment. But we need to be asking for that discernment to make sure that we aren't inadvertently causing a stumbling block for someone else or sinning on our own without realizing it. I think it's what, uh, sometimes uh, totally um, unaware. Okay, I've seen brethren totally unaware of this because they see it as important to somehow get someone else alerted to, oh, this is bad or this is bad. But if it's a mixture of truth mm -hmm. and error, mm -hmm. you know, I think we should be very hesitant. Mm -hmm. So that's taking a little far afield, but that part of discernment has been really big with me lately. Yes. I think it's so important to learn to discern. Uh, there's a lot in what you said, and, and I agree with it all. And I thank you uh, for bringing, and I get these emails as well, and, and you've sort of uh, jogged me a bit to say, I should respond, because I see the, the mixture, and I just delete it. I delete a lot, but I, sometimes I, I think, <coughs> sometimes I just delete, but, but if, like John will actually read one, and if I actually read it, <laughs> then I'm like, well now, I feel, but I respond to that individual. Right, not, I think not, that, that's the not, right thing to do. Not the 50 people right. I send it out to, I respond to the individual, and I'm always hopeful and prayerful that that, that person will see what I'm trying to say. Yes. Sometimes they do, and actually sometimes it takes multiple times of trying to explain what you're trying to say, because they're not picking up on it. Yes, but I, I don't do that, and I think that's a good example, and I should do that. I should reply. It takes time, unfortunately. And say, but, it, but it's, in this, it's critical, yeah. because they're forwarding this, and it just takes a little bit of error to get in our psyche, mm -hmm. and then a little bit more, and before you know it, we're off on a, a tangent. Uh, so I like that, but what I really like in what you said, I, I like all of it, but, but I appreciate mostly, uh, your mentioning of slander. That sometimes brethren think that they can discern uh, whether or not another brother has the spirit. Right? And whether or not, you know, they have this problem or that problem. And really the mind of Christ is to esteem your brethren better than yourself. We need to discern false teaching. Right? And we do need to discern false brethren. But we also need to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And, and the reason God gives us each other is because we're not perfect. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need each other. The fact that we need each other means we are a congregation of imperfect people. Therefore, we're going to rub each other the wrong way. My imperfections are going to affect Jan. His imperfections may affect uh, John. John's may affect Scott's, etc. But if we have the mind and the heart of Christ, we're just going to love each other. We're going to forgive each other. We're going to forbear with one another. We're going to pray for one another. What's that? If there's actually something that someone's doing that you think is wrong, that's where you need to go to your brother. Yes. But it's not an email to the, you know, it, it's an individual to an individual to say, and that's where I think when I respond to an email like that to the individual, they might be at a distance. I'm trying to go to my brother and say, so if there's something, whether we, we discern uh, error in, in a brethren, 
I think it's our responsibility as brothers to go to that yes. person. With the humble mind. Right. And, humble and maybe we're wrong and maybe yes. we're right. But if you don't go to the person, you won't know. And if yes. you feel like that's something you're seeing, that's where you go one-on-one. Yes. Very good. Very good. Other comments? Or the customer? <laughs> was that uh, God can use truth coming from people with wrong motives yes. to still bless people. Yes, very good. And it uh, takes me back to Habakkuk, where Israel couldn't figure out why God was using the Chinese and Babylonians. He said, let me worry about that. I'm using them to teach you a lesson. So God can use evil people, or let me take a step back, people with wrong motives, and still they can still be preaching the truth. And I guess for us to have that higher level consciousness to say, okay, how is God working this out? You know, to have that. Focusing on the message, not the message. Yes. Very good. Jen. But I do think this, uh, the creeping in of false doctrine in the church, we have to be alert. And it's happening every single day. And so, deleting it is good for me. It's gone. But it might not be good for the brethren, because it keeps being forwarded. Right? So, uh, but you're right. Um, let's just quickly try to get in. Um, I want to just get down to verse 18 of chapter 2. So the rest of chapter 1 I covered in the sermon. And uh, verses 1 to 11, 1 to 12 of chapter 2 I covered in the sermon as well. And that was uh, looking at the mind of Christ. And again, that we could study that over and over and over again for the rest of our lives and we wouldn't have studied it enough. Um, so we need to go over that. But I just want to uh, remind you of chapter uh, 2, verse 12, where he says, Therefore, my beloved, again, that love that he had for this congregation, and he's talking to the whole congregation, as you have always obeyed, so they always obeyed, they never gave him problem. They, he, he's a con- they're a congregation that he could be joyful over. So as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. I'm in prison now. I cannot come to you. You've always been an obedient uh, congregation when I'm present. I can't come to you now. It's even more important that you do this in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what we said in uh, the sermon last time was, it is contradictory for this to mean that individually we have to work out our salvation. This would contradict the whole thrust of the book, which is to get away from selfish ambition and to put on the mind of Christ where it's all about esteeming others better than themselves. So this is a collective imperative. It is something that is an instruction to the whole congregation. Work out your salvation together and do it with fear and trembling because we're imperfect people and our imperfections can destroy one another. I might have a short temper. You might have uh, a sarcastic tongue, and that's a wicked combination. Right? Sarcastic tongue and a short temper, okay? 
Um, he says to the, I think it was the Ephesians, be careful you do not bite and devour one another and destroy one another. So as a collective, we have to work this out. It's a collective of imperfect people. And as a collective of imperfect people, we better be very afraid to destroy one another. So let's work this out. God has packed us in tightly together because we need each other. Each one of us has something that the congregation needs. So we're packed in tightly. We are imperfect. Unconditional love. love. We've got to have that. That's agape. So he says that your, your agape would increase more and more with knowledge and discernment. And that discernment we really have to apply to ourselves. As I discern myself, am I living the mind of Christ here? Am I esteeming my brother better than myself? So let's work out this salvation collectively, not individually, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Don't let, let the Spirit work in you to overcome your imperfections and put on the mind of Christ. And it's God who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the things that please God, we really can't do them humanly. But the Spirit in us, as it indwells us and activates us, that's what's going to enable us to do God's will and uh, please Him. Now, He tells us how to do this. So, it's a collective instruction. And in verse 14, He begins to unpack how we do it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So, as a congregation that is going to bring our pastor joy, not groaning, the way we do this is let's do everything without grumbling or disputing. Let's just have that mind of Christ, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And this seems to be a theme that's in Paul's mind a lot, whether or not he has labored in vain that he he works so hard, and there are so many problems in so many congregations, and he sees them destroying each other, that he wonders if he's labored in vain. And so the instruction here to the Philippians, which we want to take on here in Burlington, is let's work out our salvation together with fear and trembling. This podcast was brought to you by the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more, visit us on the web at cgiburlington.org.